Hello, and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be discussing some, well, medium-sized questions, such as who we are, how did we come to be here, and how did the universe itself that surrounds us come to be here. And to assist in this is John Hans, the author of Cosmo Sapiens, Human Evolution from the Origin of the Universe, which is just out now in paperback and tackles all of these issues and more. And joining us also is James Lefanu, a spectator and Telegraph regular, who's admiring reader of Mr. Hans's book and is going to talk a bit about his responses to it. John, can I start by asking you, this is a book on such a huge subject. I mean, you know, most, most people tackle evolution or cosmology, and you've done both. Can you talk a bit about how that came about and you know, how on earth you approach such a, you know, a theory of everything? Yes, well, most people talk about e- evolution in terms of biological evolution. But I want, wanted to know what we are, where do we come from, why do we exist, and not just where we came from, from the first life forms on Earth, but where did that come from, where did that come from, where did that come from, right back to the primordial matter and energy at the beginning of the cosmos, of which we ultimately consist. Yeah, I mean, one, one obvious question would say you are Mr. Hands, you're not Professor Hands or Dr. Hands. I mean, what we'd say to people is say, how can you take this on as a sort of, as it were, generalist? Well, I did graduate in science and I, uh, for four years, I did tutor in physics for the Open University. So I do have a background in science. But there was an advantage in not being a member of an academic department in that I felt I had the freedom to impartially, as far as possible, evaluate current theories. Because there's a great tendency, and we, we may well come onto this, w- within academic department to follow what Thomas Kuhn called the paradigm, to all speak from the same song sheet. There's a lot of pressures in that to conform. If you want your paper published, if you want to get research grants and so on. I haven't got those pressures, so I felt I could be, as far as possible, make an impartial evaluation. James, what was your response to the book? Were you, were you persuaded? I mean, so we'll talk a bit about the issues in it, but... Yes. Well, this is, you know, this is the greatest story ever told. I mean, I don't, a lot of people don't really appreciate, don't understand how, essentially, in the last 60 years, we, you know, we are the first generation of our species to be able to hold in our mind's eye the whole history of the universe from the moment it started till yesterday. I mean, it's unbelievably thrilling. So it's a terrific story, and the point about it is, is that John tells it terribly well. I mean, one of the things is that, you know, somebody like Stephen Hawkins, for example, one gets bogged down after about page two or three. But here, I really get the sense, you know, I'm really going to understand, you know, perhaps for the first time, you know, what really is the Big Bang all about, you know, and the origins of life. And that is, you know, that's a t- terrific thing. You sense that... And so there's that sense of John's telling a story and... And it's, you know, it's obviously complex. The science behind it is very complex. But, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're being sort of taken into his confidence, you know, that, you know, these are things which are understandable. And I think that's, so that's the, I mean, I think it's very important to say that, you know, it's a terrifically readable book. But it's also, I mean, it's more than simply a digest of, of current scientific knowledge or a primer. I mean, it's actually quite a pugnacious book, isn't it? I mean, you say that two of the great foundational theories that are now widely held to be accepted wisdom essentially the Big Bang and the, you know, the sort of selfish gene version of Darwinism, are basically wrong. Yes, 
That, that is why it, it, it's not just telling the story of what science says. As I said, I want to try and make an impartial evaluation. And I entered the project with a completely open mind. I'm, I'm not a believer in, in theism, deism, materialism or whatever. I genuinely do not know. And so it was with that sort of open mind I approached it. And when I planned the book, I, for example, I just planned two chapters on the emergence and evolution of matter because I'd assumed that the Big Bang was established science. But the more I investigated, the more I found, hey, this is not so. That more than 60 years ago, cosmologists had seen that the Big Bang theory was contradicted by observational evidence. So they changed the theory, they changed the theory, they changed the theory, and the latest version is called the concordance model. I, we all agree with it. I, in fact, it's more accurately described as the, the inflationary before or after the Big Bang unknown dark energy, unknown dark matter model. Um, it, it fails <laughs> to... A bit more a mouthful, that, isn't it? Well, 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 yes, but that's more accurately describes it. I mean, for example, its central axiom is that the universe inflated by a trillion, trillion, trillion times the speed of light in a trillion, trillion, trillion of a second. Well, that's, that's untestable. Therefore, it's not science, because what differentiates science from religion or philosophy is its empiricism. It tests it by experiment or observation, producing testable theories. Well, that's Popper's idea of falsification, underpinning the scientific method, isn't it? The idea that you can test and falsify a um, is that Well, right? Popper was the falsification, yes. But science, generally, quite apart from Popper, is it's, it's what differentiates it from religion of belief or philosophical inquiry based upon speculation and argument is, is his empiricism. It must be testable. James, yes, well, I mean, I, I think, don't think... I, I don't think I quite agree with that, John. I mean, that's certainly not what... I really take from the book. I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, it's an untestable theory and therefore, you know, for whatever reasons it might be, because, of course, it is untestable. We can't go back and find out how it all happened. But I think what is interesting about and what your book is so good about is the way that it, as it were, illuminates the inconsistencies within the story, which is point one, you know, which one wouldn't necessarily find anywhere else in terms persuasively. But the other thing is that you then get, you know a dozen other alternative theories. And it's in that tension between, you know, this is the mainstream theory, but actually Fred Hoyle said something else, you know, somebody else said something else. And somehow or other, in, you get that sense of, you know, of the theory in the round. Um, and that's what you want. I mean, I think, I'm not necessarily sure that one wants a sort of definitive answer, yes or no, right or wrong. But you, what you do want to do, and I think you do it very well, you enter into the sense of the, the spirit of the argument. And, you know, what are the points at issue? And why, actually, the Big Bang is, you know, I mean, it's it's an incredibly powerful emotive image. But, you know, thanks to your exposition of the science, one does get an understanding of its weaknesses in a way that you wouldn't know other way. I, yes. mean, I think I would... Yeah, I, I, but, but, I, but I would say, James, to yeah. that, that the problem... When you say it's not testable, well, yes, it is. I mean, the problem arises because these cosmological theories are mathematical models. They're simplified solutions of Einstein's field equations of general relativity applied to the universe, and they're based on assumptions. 
But the latest observations show those assumptions to be invalid. I mean, one of the assumptions is of, of uniformity, that the universe is exactly uniform right throughout its existence, uh, right throughout. And we look in the night sky and you see that obviously not true because you can see the Milky Way. But the general assumption is, well, on a large scale... It's it, uniform it, in it, the it, sense it, what it, of... It's, it's all the same. That's the assumption. It, it, to solve the equations of Einstein's general relativity applied to the universe is incredibly difficult. So make all the assumptions. So one assumption is that the unif- universe is uniform. But in, in what sense do you mean uniform? You mean the laws of physics obtain in the no, same way throughout no, it? Or that the universe... No, all, all matter. That if you, the universe is exactly the same at any point throughout. Which it's is homogenous. Yes, homogenous. Which is, which is obviously not true. But it was generally assumed that on the largest scale it was valid. But every single time, and the last, in, in 2016, this year, there was an observation of the sky which showed an object which was 11 billion light years across. But that is not uniform. You know, every single observation has undermined this assumption of of homogeneity. So I'm saying that it's, actually, it's highly questionable. Can I take you back to just that one point you made about certain of the models that have been made, you know, mathematical models that are offered as explanatory of, say, the trillion trillionths of a second after the Big Bang. There's a kind of conceptual crux here, isn't there? Is, is it possible, in your worldview, for a theory about how the universe works to be true yet also untestable? Because I think that is that is what people are now saying. You know, a lot of cosmologists will say about things like string theory, about various sort of quantum interactions, yeah. that this is our best model for it, but it happens that the model contains that we'll never be able to have the data to actually test it. I mean, is that to you a scientific failure? Should science question no, it? No, I, I think that you know, those cosmologists who are saying that are absolutely right. What I've detected among many, though, is a lack of humility in regarding the limitations of science. There are certain limitations within the domain of science, and then there are limitations of the domain of science. And you've got to recognise that. And too often, I mean, for, for example, I, I had lunch with the then president of the Royal Astronomical Society, and he had he, he found out that I'd written novels, and so he gave me literary criticism of, of, of 20th century. That was fine. That was I had no problem with that. And I said, well, I'd be very grateful if I could send you a draft chapter in which, you know, please check for errors of fact, omission, unreasonable conclusions or anything else. He said, I'd be delighted, John. Then I got this email back five days later saying, I'm not prepared to support an attack on cosmology. And somebody who hasn't spent 30 years fully immersed in the mathematics of it is in no position to make a critique of cosmology. And I said, OK, fine, but if you actually read the draft chapter, mm. I don't just quote me, I quote several highly reputable cosmologists who challenge the current theory. And I mentioned one of them, and he said, he's got no credibility whatsoever. Now, he had actually awarded that particular cosmologist the Royal Astronomical Society's gold medal (laughs) two years before. And it's this idea of anyone who questions from within 
is a heretic, and anyone who questions from without is an ignoramus. <laughs> and I think you know, we must accept you know, there are limitations of the domain of science uh, and within the domain of science. And if something is put as scientific, in that sense, if it's not testable, it's a philosophical speculation, which may or may not be right. But we don't know. But we can't say it's science, because science is testable. James, as a as a medical man, yes. have you encountered something similar in your Well, I think, I, mean, I think it's a pervasive problem in science that there is a, you know, there's an internal orthodoxy and it's very difficult to challenge it. And there are a variety of ways in which it, it happens, you know, one of which is you know, they, they select the evidence that they want you to know and you know, forget the evidence that they don't, that sort of thing. And I think one of the great things about you know, taking this Olympian view is you see that actually this is not an isolated phenomenon, but it's a sort of rec- recurring pattern. You look at cosmology, you look at evolutionary biology, you look at the molecular biology and so on. And, and um, there's a sort of a consistency in the way in which you get the sense that either you're being given a, a sort of slightly sanitised version of what it is that is known, um, and it's certainly that you're not being introduced to that which might not be known or what the inconsistencies in the theory might be. And, and this is you know, stretching. And of course, in a sense, this is very exhilarating because, I mean taking the Olympian view and seeing this recurring pattern because it allows you to, as it were, glimpse beyond that which can be known, irrespective of, as it were, that grand epic narrative of, you know, from the first elements of matter to ourselves. You find that there are there are moments within it, you know, which seem to be completely irresolvable, which you can't get at. And obviously, you know, the origin of matter is one of them. The origin of life is other. The origin of ourselves, the third. And you get the sense that these are sort of, that for everything that science might know, these are, as it were, the, you know, the twisting moments, you know, the, the things that actually you can't get at. And actually, it's terribly important to know, but perhaps you might not know them. I mean, I think there's a very good example, and Jonathan does it very well. It's the thing about, you know, the fitness of the planet for life. And, you know, there you know, the dozen things that happen that, that are necessary. It's the Goldilocks thing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> for us to be here. That's right. And, of course, one has, you know, you have a sense that there is something rather exceptional about life. But by the time you've listed all 12, and you think, wow, that really is something special. And this is a sort of a recurring theme in the book. You get, you, you know, as you bring everything together, you think, irrespective of what any individual aspect of that, you know, the phenomenon of, our Earth being where it is and having the temperature it does and the atmosphere it does and so on. It's, it's, well, it's the concatenation of them together, which I think is is is, is very it's thrilling. Vanishing the unlikely as well. I mean, <laughs> do, um, you, you make the case in the book, if I'm you know, representing you rightly, for the sort of uniqueness of human beings in the universe. Yeah. Did the process of writing the book, I mean, you put, I think you put in the preface, you say that you were raised, I think, was a Roman Catholic? Yes. And that you've, you were then an atheist, but <coughs> yes. now you're an agnostic. Yes. Is it the process of writing this book that brought you from being an atheist to being an agnostic? No, I, 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 I became a, an agnostic before I wrote this book, and I approached it from a position of agnosticism. I, I generally do not know, and I wanted to know. But if I can very quickly come back some, to another point that you made, and, and also, James, about not being testable... The current explanation of biological evolution is, is neo-Darwinism, and as you said, it was popularised by Richard Dawkins in his best-selling book, The Selfish Gene, and it says that biological evolution is caused by genes selfishly competing with each other. Well, it's based on a fallacy of ascribing intention to an acid. 
deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, of which genes are consist. Is that not a, not a metaphor? No, because Dawkins admits that his language is sloppy and says he could express it in scientific terms if he wanted to. I've read all his books. He never does. Moreover, it's, it's a mathematical model and it's contradicted by substantial behavioural, genetic and genomic evidence. So when confronted by such evidence, um, Richard Dawkins, instead of modifying the theory to take account of new evidence, as a good scientist should do, he simply says, well, genes must have misfired. In fact, he couldn't modify the theory because all the evidence shows that Darwinian competition causes not the evolution of species, but the destruction of species. It is collaboration, not competition, that has caused the evolution of successively more complex species. So I think this is a case where one can say this paradigm is wrong and needs replacing by a new evidence-based paradigm. And in the book, I've given several other different mechanisms which explain biological evolution, and these are evidence-based, unlike neo-Darwinism, which is a mathematical model and not evidence-based. There does seem to be a certain amount of evidence for competition taking place in the biological world. I mean, is oh, yeah. is your, your theory one that sort of takes in the Dawkins model but says there's more to it than that, or is it one that rejects it outright? No, no. The greatest phenomenon, the most, the widest phenomenon in biology is the extinction of species. It's estimated variously that 99 point, either 99% or 99.9% of all species that have existed become extinct. And that has been caused by competition. Now, competition is there in a very big way, but it causes the destruction of species. What causes the much smaller evolution of successfully more complex species is collaboration. Things like hybridization, when two different species mate and the whole genomes are shared. Something called horizontal gene transfer for the most numerous species on the planet. Instead of Darwinian descent through generations, vertical descent, it's horizontal exchange of DNA that's immediate and causes immediate new species. Not gradual, as according to Darwinian theory. Now, outside my expertise, James, right. James, do you have a view on this? This idea of horizontal transfer of genes. I mean, well, I, yes, I thought that was a very marginal thing. But yes, I'm, I'm I mean, it doesn't. Wrong. I mean, I, I mean, I think that the the interesting thing about um, I don't really think that one wants to necessarily be providing answers here. I mean, what, what is interesting is that when you do look at you know the evolutionary story as John does and you know you address the evidence and it's then it's it's very interesting to see as it were what is summarized uh, you know this is a very incredibly powerful resonant theory but actually if you the the problems with things like for example the fossil record are are really intractable and I think what is interesting is the way in which people have as it were confronted that you know so for example there is meant to be is meant to be a gradualist process of natural selection acting on the random mutation of genes, and as it were, one species gradually transforms into another. That is the theory. And yet it's quite clear that it doesn't work like that. You know, that actually species are the same for hundreds of millions of years, and then suddenly they 
change or disappear or stop and start. And of course, you know, and there are alternative ways of looking at this. And you know, Stephen Gould has theory of a punctuated equilibrium and in fact you know it's quite i was rather amazed to see that there are no less than 12 different alternative evolutionary scenarios <laughs> and i think that the point about each of them is that each of the is, is that as we're looking at it this is a rather multifaceted sort of way allows you to look, look as it were at the same body of evidence from you know different perspectives and that's you know and that's incredibly useful and of course you can't do that anywhere else because most books of evolution, evolutionary books, you know, it is assumed that actually, basically, we know the story and this yeah. is just a modification. But that's clearly that's clearly not the case. And I think that there is, of course, a, a great dilemma for science here, because in a sense, the more that they know, the less clear it becomes. Contrary to the view of most biologists who say that we only differ. In, in degree from other animals, I was forced to the conclusion that we are unique. And what marked our emergence as a, as a distinct species some 25,000 years ago wasn't the shape or size of our skulls, or that we walked upright, or that we lacked bodily hair, or the genes we possess. I mean, these are differences in degrees from other animals. But what made us unique was reflective consciousness. Now, consciousness is a characteristic of a living thing as distinct from an inanimate thing like a rock. I mean, it's possessed in rudimentary form by the simplest species like bacteria. But in the evolutionary lineage leading to... Bacteria have consciousness? Yes, because you define... I define consciousness... What is the difference between an inanimate thing like a rock and a living thing, and it is consciousness, which is the ability to respond to other species, to the environment and to the self, and to take action. So bacteria respond to their environment, they detect predators, they move away from predators, they detect sources of sustenance, they move towards it, so they're responding. A rock does not do that. So consciousness in very rudimentary forms. But consciousness increases with increasing complexity of the species. And in the lineage leading to humans, you see increasing consciousness with increasing neural complexity and centration into the brains. Until, until with humans, it becomes conscious of itself. We are the only species that not only knows, but also knows that it knows. Can we say this for sure? Because... We can't communicate with other species. I mean, for the sake of argument, if yeah. someone would say to you, John, this is your theory. Sure. How is this scientifically testable? Because it, we right. can't see into the brain of a pig. Exactly. So what you can do, Sam, is, is test it by the behaviour that reflective consciousness causes. It's transformed existing abilities and generated new ones. It's transformed comprehension, learning, invention and communication, which all other animals have in varying degrees. But it's generated new abilities, like imagination, insight, abstraction, written language, belief and morality that no other species has. So that's what differentiates us from other animals. And it's a difference in kind, not merely degree. 
just as there are differences in kind between inanimate matter like a rock and living things like bacteria and animals. I mean, to, to give you one example, in the 1960s, when a chimpanzee was seen using a straw to dig into a termite nest to get termites out, Louis Leakey said, a tool, and chimpanzees are no different than us, you know. They use tools, we use tools, there's no difference. And, and that produced, when the Royal Society's prize, the third chimpanzee. Well, in fact, if you look at the research of specialists in, in corvids, in crows, uh, they argue that crows are actually much more efficient than chimpanzees at getting stuff out using a straw. And so, you know, are we the same as a third crow? And, and, and to argue that a chimpanzee, using all the behaviour of other animals is towards sustenance, getting food and reproduction. Those are the two objectives. And to argue that a chimpanzee using a straw to get out termites is the same thing as 10,000 scientists and engineers from over 100 countries cooperating to design and construct a large hadron collider to investigate primordial matter at the beginning of the universe is the same tool use, you know, is, I think, not on. (laughs) And exactly at the same time that this chimpanzee was found, the irony of it was, we had sent, well, NASA had sent Voyager spacecraft out to explore not only our own solar system, but going beyond and containing that famous disk with... We are humans, this is examples of our music and so on, and mathematics and so on. Not t- t- hoping that that disc is going to produce a bumper crop of termites from the other end of the universe. Right, right, right. exactly. John, I'm afraid we are running out of time. I just right. wanted to challenge one very last thing. You, almost the last words of your book, you say, we are unique, and we say we're the self-reflective agents of our future evolution. That seems to me a very controversial position to take. What do you mean by the idea that we are the agents of our future evolution? We are the only species that can determine our own evolution and our own planet. No other species can. We have the ability to destroy ourselves by nuclear war and many other means. We can make that decision and we can destroy the planet. No other species can do that. And we can determine our future evolution and hopefully, I mean, in, in the book, I, I talk about self-reflective consciousness. It's led in three phases, primeval thinking, philosophical thinking, scientific thinking. We have those abilities that no other species has. But it, it is up to us to decide how to use that. It is our choice. And presenting, I hope, readers with the knowledge that we have this will, I hope, lead to responsible choices. Well, we got to hope so perhaps president trump will tweet you anyway um john hans james lefanu thank you very much for your time thank, thank you. you and in this week's book section and the main magazine philippe sands reviews Lawrence reese's new history of the holocaust you can read richard davenport hines on malarmes and coup de day mark cocker discusses polar bears douglas murray attacks empathy and you can also read Christopher Bray on Steven Spielberg, Boyd Tonkin on Nadim Aslam, and Edward Pace on The Scramble for Africa. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do tune in again. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or listen to us in SoundCloud. And we've changed slightly in that we're now publishing this podcast on a Thursday. Thank you. <laughs>